All right, I want to slightly diverge from the, uh, uh, the topic, but it's, it's still, we're going to work on the Holy Spirit today. But in light of, I think, challenges that the churches of Christ are facing, I want to kind of redirect our energies this morning, uh, because I'll be leaving right away, and if I get in trouble, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be out of Dodge on my way to Chicago. So I would like to begin uh, today talking about why we need the Holy Spirit and develop a little bit about what I talked about yesterday, uh, develop it a little bit further. And the focus here is in Romans chapter 5 through 8 uh, for this uh, introductory section, because this is where Paul, in all of his letters, develops these terms, sins as transgression, sins as missing the mark, you know, paraptoma and hamartia, but he develops sin, uh, sins into a cosmic tyrant so that it becomes something that seems to be alive. Sin enters the picture as an agent, as a person, as a selfhood, so that it, it seems to be acting on its own. He ties to this word sin as a tyrant flesh. And flesh also becomes an agent that we are dealing with. So Paul says, flesh is battling us. It's almost like it's something outside of us, but inside of us at the same time. All of these terms are tied in Romans 5-8 through 8 to death. So Paul's theology is that human beings are sinners who are creating a system of sin and flesh, and it's leading them to death. Right? You've read Romans 5 through 8. Well, you did last night, or you heard it, if your ears were quick enough to pick it all up. It was fast for me, and I teach Romans 8. So, um, <laughs> so then Paul says on the alternative, you know, this sins, sin, flesh, death is connected to Adam. And he ties another one to Christ, who is obedient, and he is connected to life and eternal life. And yesterday I talked about systemic, and I believe that what Paul sees is that there are two worlds in which we have an opportunity to live. We have an opportunity as descendants of Adam to live in the world of sins, sin, flesh, and death, or, because of the grace of God, in Christ, we can choose by faith to live in a system where Christ has done it all, he has become righteous, and because he, he is obedient, he brings the path of righteousness, justice, and peace. All right, now, Paul wants Christians to live a life of obedience. He wants them to live a life of righteousness. These are, he says things like this. If you are in Christ, you have died to sin. You know, and you want to say, you need to come to my church. There's a lot of lot, living sinners engaged among us. But Paul's theology is the theology of, uh, it's not false dichotomy, but it's, it's opposites. You either live in this world 
or you live in this world. There are not three worlds for Paul. There is nothing gray. It is you live in the flesh or you live in the spirit. So Paul wants us to live righteousness, love, hope, peace, justice, and uh, inherit eternal life. But the logic of Romans 5 through 8, which, you know, uh, Roman scholars discuss endlessly, and no one agrees with one another, and that's why they're so smart. <laughs> they couldn't preach a sermon on these if they had to. Or if they would, no one would listen. That's the other problem. But uh, Paul works this chapter in such, this section of Romans so well that in Romans 8, and Josh last night was right about this, the, the predominance of the word spirit in Romans 8. The only solution to systemic sins, sin, flesh, and death is life in the spirit. And I often tell the, uh, a story of my, my daughter when she was in high school. She was a junior, I think, in high school, and she, it was a Friday night. Chris and I had settled in for, it was 9 o'clock. It was, the day was well spent. <laughs> and Laura was leaving the back door, and she just stops at the door and turns to us and says, what time should I be home? Because I'm a Pauline theologian type, you know, and I was, I was writing on Galatians at the time, I said, whenever the Spirit prompts you. And Chris said, 11 o'clock. <laughs> Which was Spirit-directed Mosaic Torah. But my answer was Pauline. Paul really believed this. If we live in the Spirit, we will do what is right. So he would really tell people, just live in the spirit. All right, now, flesh, sins, sin as cosmic tyrant, death. We sometimes call this in popular language systemic evil. And we're right. Because sinners together create systemic sinfulness. And they live in this, and they become blind to it. They be it becomes invisible. That we live in worlds where we, we, are, we are living in such a way that is counter to the gospel and we think we are living consistent with the gospel because this is the way we live. Right. Now, I won't, I won't press too much on this except to say that I know in the churches of Christ, people are facing right now the dilemma of American society, and that is racism. We are facing an increasingly diverse culture. The only way you and I are going to create a body of Christ that transcends racism and undoes racism is if we live in the Spirit. And we need the Spirit. When I was in high school, 1971, spring, a race riot broke out in our cafeteria. This was what the 60s and 70s were actually about, folks, not tie-dyed Californians on beach uh, in Malibu on surfboards. It was, our high school was racially tense. And when a riot broke out in the cafeteria and chairs were being thrown, life got dangerous fast. 
And not long after that, we had a, our first school um, gathering um, in the middle of the day where African-American students sang. And they sang, Black is Beautiful. And they dreamed about, We Will Overcome. And I believed in 1971 that in my lifetime, I would see the end of racism because of what was going on in the early 1970s. Some of you are old enough to remember this. Some of you look back in these days as romantic, but these were very, very difficult days in American culture. And let's just say that this is the era of, you know, post-Kennedy, post-Johnson, Nixon. From the days of Nixon through President Obama into President Trump, American society has not gotten better. We have passed laws. We really have. We've passed a lot of laws. And we get, we get all kinds of boycotts in Martin Luther King Jr. fashion that don't seem to be making a difference. I believe the difference is the Spirit of God. And it is the church's responsibility to chart the way. It's not going to happen by legislation. We've, we've done this. And it's not going to happen by redistribution of funds. We try that. It can only happen when churches who have the power to transcend racist differences decide that they're going to try to do this. Okay? Dallas Willard, vision. You've got to have a vision for this. Intention. You, you have to be intentional about it. It's not going to happen because you're nice or because your church is a Christ, which is the same thing. Okay? <laughs> It's not going to happen because you're Anglican or because you can preach Romans. It's going to happen when you sit down with someone who is other, whom you've othered, who is different from you, who is African-American, Latin American, Asian American. You know, I always bring in the Scottish Americans because we're the most neglected group. No one, <laughs> no one ever talks about us, but we're really a part of the problem. So, anyway. It's only going to happen when you invite them to coffee, when you invite them to the table. Not so you can be benevolent or patronizing, which is the problem. It'll only happen when you treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ and listen and become a different system. Right, so that the goodness of being brothers and sisters forms another system. It's called family, when we become family, all right? Now, the Apostle Paul faced this problem. And Apostle Paul had no blueprint. This was, you know, 1776. This was the beginning of it all. When Paul, as a missionary from the Jewish world, where Jews were a cut above the rest. I know you'll be using that in a sermon. I did this at a Christian college one time, and the president called me in the next day and told me that my humor was unacceptable. <laughs> I've not been invited back. But I'll use it again if I need to. So, it's because he was a cut above the rest. I wanted to say that, but I thought, well... All right, so 
It is only, is Paul, as he is expanding the gospel to include Romans and Greeks and barbarians and Scythians. Galatians 3.28, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave and free, male and female. They are all one in Christ. Colossians 3.11, there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, Scythian or barbarian. For Christ is in all. Now, you have to ask, what's a Scythian? Easy. Green Bay Packer fans. <laughs> People who wear cheese heads are not even barbarians. They're, they're Scythians. A Scythian is a hillbilly who lives north of the Black and Caspian Sea, and they're just seen as just uncivilized, crazy people worthy of slavery. That's why they're joined with slaves. This is Paul's vision. This is a great idea. You know, it's like C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is such a lovely idea until you have someone to forgive. <laughs> Unity in Christ is a great idea until your neighbor moves in and they're gay. Or your neighbor moves in and they're of a different ethnicity than you are, which is not the same as race. They, and they have a different economics, or they have a different political theory. You know, they put Trump signs on their front door all over, and you're worried about this, what this might mean. Or they put, I'll, I'll pick on both sides, Hillary signs on the, the front door, so everybody can be irritated. <laughs> and these are, these are the tensions in our society, and Paul dealt with this. So I want to introduce you to uh, how Paul was moved by the Spirit to create a family in the church, a different system, because it is only if we listen to the Spirit and are moved by the Spirit that we have a chance of transcending racism in our time and making a difference. And it will only happen at the smallest of levels. Legislation can protect and contain and punish, but it cannot transform human beings who are racist into someone who wants to believe in another person. All right, here's the person I want to introduce you to first. We all know him. We all name our children after him. His name is Onesimus. Tom Wright in his Kingdom New Testament translates Onesimus, Mr. Useful. That's the Greek word, that's what it means. Growing up with the name useful, not exactly romantic. It's a, it's a slam. This is a, a, a worker who I hope is useful, and that's what they name him. Onesimus lives in Colossae in a home of a slave owner. We don't often call him that in the United States because he's in our Bible. A slave owner by the name of Philemon, who my graduate assistant once called Philemon. You, you only say that when you're nervous. Or it shows that you haven't read Philemon in a long time. So his name is Philemon. He's a slave owner. He's got a slave named Onesimus. Now, I'd like to talk to you about slavery in the first century because only in understanding slavery do we understand Paul's spiritual, spirit-prompted vision of turning slaves into something that they previously were not. And that's our culture, is to take relationships that are completely impossible 
and making them family. All right? Scholars tell us they're right on this because I believe because I wrote about it. <laughs> Scholars tell us that about 30% of the Roman Empire was slaves. 250,000 slaves were sold on the open market in the Roman Forum every year. They were put on a dot. slaves if you advertise falsely your slaves capacities abilities or physical condition you could be you could be in trouble in the Ro in roman law so this is how many slaves there were slaves in the first century is not connected to race you could not walk down the street and i now race is connected usually in in sociological studies to skin color more often than ethnicity so let's let's talk race here you could not walk down the street of Rome and, and infer from a person's skin color their status in society. Slaves looked like Romans throughout the empire. Slavery was not connected to racism until at least the 6th century uh, in Africa. So it, you have to recognize that it's a, a slave is, looks like an, uh, like an ordinary person in the first century, frequently captured in wars. They dressed like the poor. They did not dress like the elite, who in their togas had stripes that designated their status. But this is the 5%, 2%, 1%. So ordinary people all looked alike in the Roman Empire. And uh, the, the abject poor, the really poor poor, of course, uh, looked poor, but there wasn't any kind of net to catch them, so the, the really deeply poor just died. That's, that's the result of being super poor in the first century. We have to understand what slavery is, and this is where Christians have made a constant historical mistake, and, and I want to correct it this morning. This is not, I'm not the first to do this, so this isn't anything new. Slavery, by definition, is this. It's a means of securing and maintaining an involuntary labor force. An involuntary labor force. That's what all slaves are and always have been. And they are maintained by a group in society that has power enough to use slave labor to profit for their own business. The notion that New World slavery in the United States was worse than Roman slavery is a myth created by Bible readers who'd like their Bible not to say things that they'd prefer it not say. But it does. And that's our Bible. We deal with the Bible as it is, not the way we'd like it to be. Okay? So there are slaves in the Bible. Onesimus is, is a part of an involuntary labor force uh, and Philemon has the money and power, all right? Slaves, most of whom were born into slavery, uh, lived in a, a, a sort of family life. 
if your master and his wife were good, kind, caring, loving people, you had a better life than if your master was, as Peter calls him, a scalioi, scalios, a rascal, which means mean. So if you have a nice master, you probably have a better life. You're still a slave. You can't do anything about it. And if you have a mean master, you're a slave, and it's tough. Slaves were routinely abused physically and sexually. It was common for a Roman Greek male. This is common, according to Roman and Greek historians. For a Roman Greek male to have sex with a slave girl in his house in the morning, a slave boy in the afternoon, and his wife at night. Common. So Paul's injunctions, Jewish injunctions, of sexual faithfulness is just outlandish to Greek and Roman males. Outlandish. And it was one of the biggest challenges early Christian males faced. This is a critical category. Roman male slaves, Roman Empire male slaves, remained in the category of boys their entire life. Because if you became a man, you could be married. And you could have children. And if you became a man, you could have inheritance. And that meant you became a self-sufficient individual. This could not happen. Even in the Gospels, we see slave terms and terms used for slaves in the text fluctuating between pais, diakonos, doulos. So when John, in John 4, calls the slave, he calls a doulos, a slave, in Luke, in in Luke, when he calls him a huios, a son, it is a remarkable moment of early Christian liberation. So Roman males were, were uh, Roman male slaves were boys. So therefore, they could not be married. But it is good Roman Roman uh, slave masters learned. Uh, Paul Noah, who wrote a whole chapter on how to manage the slave class. Um, they learned that Roman male slaves were better off if they provided them with a woman to calm them down a bit. So they developed. We do not know Onesimus' all his details. We do know that he was a slave, which means he's owned for the profits of, of business. We know somehow that Philemon ends up in prison with Paul, or connected to Paul through the prison. There are two options, and uh, you can choose because the evidence is weak and divided. He could have been a runaway. case, Paul finds him and sends him back. He could have been an era, the other Latin word, and this is someone who runs away, not permanently, he runs away to find an advocate. And when he finds an advocate, Paul, who can, who can be an advocate with Philemon, he can go back and find justice. 
The book of Philemon, the letter of Philemon, it couldn't be explained either way. I think the evidence is slightly tilted in this direction, about 60% versus 40%. Right? But you, and you can preach it both ways. People don't care. Right? They're not gonna, it's not going to change anybody's sanctification status. That's Onesimus. Philemon is a slave owner. And that means he's a man of status. He has a household. He's a Christian. He will have been offended by what happened with Onesimus. He will, it would have cost him money. Onesimus runs away. Somehow he gets in contact with Paul. We don't know how he did. But in the process, Paul leads him to Jesus. And contrary to Roman law, he works with him a while. Roman law was, if you find a runaway slave, they must be returned immediately because you could suffer capital punishment for harboring a runaway slave. We don't know how long Paul kept him, long enough to convert him, long enough to teach him some things and have him become a helper in the ministry. But the amazing thing about this is Paul sent the man back to Philemon. And we're going to look at the book of Philemon today because Philemon is a spirit-born letter teaching you and me how to deal with racism in our culture today. Believe me, when you read it, you will see the message that it absolutely haunts how we treat one another in churches. All right? It haunts it. So we're going to look at Philemon, but I want to say one more thing about Philemon. When this letter was read to Philemon in his house church, it was not read the way we read scripture on Sunday mornings in churches. It was not on a screen. You put the NIV on a screen in your churches so people can see it. It was not read as it is in an Anglican church with people sitting there with their hands under their butts just listening or daydreaming, not listening. Instead, the letter was performed, and we think it was probably performed by Tychicus, who is mentioned as the letter courier in Colossians, which seems to be a letter sent at the same time. Tychicus would have entered the room with Philemon and performed the letter. He would not have to have read it word for word, and he would not have had his head buried in the text as if he's reading it for the first time. And he comes across Archippus, and he goes, Ar Archie, uh, you know how that works? People get to Methuselah, Mordecai, and they don't have any idea how to pronounce these names. No. He would have been taught and mentored by Paul. When you read this sentence, pause. When you read this sentence, look at the other slaves in the household. When you read this sentence, step forward and look at Philemon in the eye. Make sure he gets your attention. Soften up on these words. Make these strong. And he probably had the letter memorized. And in reading the letter, he would have had the freedom as he was reading it, to see that people are going, what does that mean? 
back off and explain words extemporaneously as commentary. So unlike how we read scripture in our churches. Because this was not scripture. This was a letter intended to persuade a slave owner of doing something with his runaway slave. And not only that, Paul's gospel is at stake in the response of Philemon to this letter. He says no, Paul loses. Paul backs out. He says yes, Paul wins. All right? So, this is the other part of reading a letter. Nobody in the room sat there quietly. Everybody participated. They oohed and odd. If they'd have had signs, they would have held up four. Eight. That was an eight sentence. That was really good. So they didn't. They, they would have booed. They would have cheered. They would have clapped. They would have interrupted on a regular basis. And they may have said, what does that mean? So you're going to have to participate today. But you only have to learn one word to participate. Dilly. But you always say it twice. Dilly, dilly. Right? You are Philemon's family. You're for Philemon. Everything that is read that you think is good for Philemon, you have to say dilly, dilly. Right? Now, don't be Anglican. Be Pentecostals for the day. Okay. And, and you are slaves. And you're going to hear this all from Onesimus' side. There would have been other slaves, male and female, in the household. Right? I need two cheerleaders. People who have a little bit of, they're, they're a little bit of a ham that they can kind of cheer people on. This is not a very good, who, who wants this guy? Are you, you look like a good ham. Come on, we need, we need a good we need a good slave leader. Right? Dilly dilly! <laughs> He's got it. Who's, who's over here? Come on. Let's go. Come on up here, Nicholas. Hey, hey, stay up here. <laughs> hey, stay up here. No messing around. You got to stay up here. Okay, now you you got to cheer everybody on on this side. All right. I may have to I may have to bump you every now and then to make sure. Okay. All right. I am not Tychicus. And I'm coming in. Oh, I got to have an old. Randy, you come up. You be Onesimus. Well, you, be the, you be the slave. Right. Is that all right? Can you? Yeah. Okay. I'd rather be Onesimus than Philemon. Guys in trouble. All right. So this is, this is going to be, this is the Philemon side. So you're at Philemon and with. No, we're, we're, you're the slave. Yeah, this is Philemon's side. So we got to get you over here. All right, we'll get you over here. We come into the room, and we're going into the household, and we're going to read this letter. We're going to perform this for this entire audience. Paul comes in, and Tychicus reads the letter, but everybody knows that when Tychicus reads, Tychicus is Paul. They would have seen him as the, the Greek word is parousia, the presence of Paul. We use this word for the second appearing of Christ. So it was an appearing of Paul in Tychicus. All right. So we come in the house, Onesimus, Randy, John, Dr. Onesimus and I. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul never begins a letter calling himself a prisoner. So 
So he's, he's identified himself with the marginalized. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Paul did not write his letters alone. He did not dictate his letters. They were committee uh, drafts together of consultation. To Philemon, our dear brother, dear friend, and our fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, or Archippus, our fellow soldier. So now he's identified with some people on Philemon's side. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God. Now you're the, you're the, who's following? This is Vicky. Right, I'm going to say, I was trying to get my side. That's right, that's right. We got to get, this, you were all messed up. We got to start over. I'm, I'm, used to, I'm used to the Philemon being on the right. Okay, so Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now the slaves can. can. Now we got to get to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Everybody. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, now at this point, we all know what's going to happen. Tychicus knows, Onesimus knows, Philemon is totally in the dark. So there's suspension here. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love, Philemon, for, for all his holy people. The emphasis on that word, all. They don't know what he just said. But he knows. And you'd like to know, but you don't know either. All right? You're going to find out. All right? I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray, now this is where Paul goes theologically abstract, but it's brilliant. This is rhetorically smooth. He's going to say everything in this next sentence, and nobody knows what he's saying except us. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Oh, no, you're not dilly-dillying. You're dealing with <laughs> Partnership. Ooh, that's a nice word. Fellowship, koinonos. What does that mean? Concretely, in reality. Your love. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, Philemon, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. <laughs> now, what Paul has just done here is stroke the ego of Philemon in public. Philemon is going, you know, he's got a puffin chest, penguin chest. He's just waddling down the street with all kinds of praise from the Apostle Paul. I'm going to run out of time, so I'll go fast. Now Paul starts to turn the rhetorical moves in the letter. Therefore, now listen to this expression. 
Although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Now listen to this. I'm not going to order you, but I could. I'm going to ask you to do this for love. But since I've just told you I could order you, I just ordered you. <laughs> Paul was rhetorically smooth there. It is none other than Paul. Now, we want some oohs and ahs here, some big dilly-dillies. An old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Yeah. Everybody feels sorry for me. Really do. That I appeal to you, now listen to this expression, for my son, Onesimus. Now, the word he uses is not huias, which is Paul's favorite word for son, John's word for son. He uses technon. Technon is his term for those he gives birth to in Christ who become very dear in his own family. So, Onesimus is his convert who became my son while I was in chains. All right, now he's a brother, all right? Formerly, he was useless to you. We got to do it. Formerly, he was useless to you. You all know this, and you all know this. He was a lazy scoundrel of a slave. No, the biggest problem right here is that he's a cardinal saint. So, I don't think that's the same as a I don't think that's the same as a slave owner, but it's close. Okay. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. We love the fact that he's become useful. Now he's got potential. I am sending him who is my very heart. My very heart, okay? Now, this is the word Paul uses about refreshing the hearts of all the saints. So they didn't know what was coming. He's ready to bring it back. I'm sending him back to you. No, you want this to happen. Because he got you in trouble when he ran away. You were all implicated in his fugitive status. All right, so you're glad Paul sent him back. You're a little nervous about him. Because whatever happens to him happens to you. If it's bad, you're in trouble. If it's good, it's good for you. Christian owner. Christian owner. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. For Paul now really likes Onesimus. He's become a servant of the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. You want consent. So that any favor you would do would not, I don't like this Greek word, English word favor. It's stronger than that. Any favor you would do would not seem forced, but voluntary. We're back to this voluntary thing. Perhaps Paul, for the moment, becomes quasi-Calvinistic. But just for a moment, he's on the right side on this issue. Perhaps the reason he was separated, divine passive, from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Now listen to this. This is a magical moment in this letter. And this is America and racism. No longer as a slave. 
better than a slave, a brother. He's now going to become a sibling to Paul the Apostle, to Philemon, to Archippus, to Aphia, a sister. He's going to become family member, no longer as a slave, better than a slave, a dear brother. He is very dear to me. Paul uses impossible in Greek, but it communicates. He is very dear to you, but even dearer to me, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. You're nervous. What does it mean for a slave owner to treat his slave as a brother? That's the challenge of first century Christianity with Paul's vision. Siblings in Christ are not slaves. So if you consider me a partner, this is called manipulative, <laughs> welcome him as you would welcome me, which means I didn't hear a thing out of you. That was good. <laughs> because how you treat him is how you treat Paul. So Paul wants you to say, you know how you treat me? Now treat him the same way. Paul's banking his life on this relationship. If he's done any wrong, he has. When he ran away, he certainly stole things, had provisions for his, his trip. Or owes you anything, charge it to me. Same language Paul is basically using in Colossians 1 on the IOU on the cross. I, Paul, now Paul picks up the pen first time in the whole letter. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. Bad handwriting is what it indicates. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> That's a move. Bump. That's a punch in the nose. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you and the Lord. You know how you benefited everybody else. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now Paul pulls out all stops, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. I love this. This is clever. I don't know how to put it other than this is the heat turned up. Prepare a guest room for me. <laughs> because I hope to be restored in answer to your prayers. You know, you prayed for me to get out of prison and come visit you? I'm coming. <laughs> and I'll be checking up on my friend Onesimus. Epaphras, now these are the people we ignore in sermons, but shouldn't be ignored because they dot the la Pauline landscape as his close associates. Epaphras, who founded the church at Colossae, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends you his greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The letter ends. The letter ends. We have this letter almost certainly because it worked. It worked. What happened is Onesimus entered the house the letter was performed in front of the whole audience, and Philemon said, Welcome back, brother. Welcome back, Cotter. Yeah. Welcome back. 
You could sing it because you're Church of Christ. I can't. <laughs> All right, so you can you can sit down. All right, very good. So, so when Paul reads this letter, it becomes performative utterance. He is saying welcome. And when, when Philemon puts his arms around Onesimus, a whole new reality is created in the household of Philemon. Now what Paul did not do, which we would like for him to do, but he didn't do, and that's what we have to live with, he did not emancipate him. He didn't have the power to do that. He didn't even ask Philemon to emancipate him. An emancipated slave in the first century was not an emancipation in the 20th century or 18th century. An emancipated slave would have been called a Junian and would have been probably employed by the master and now having to secure his own housing and living and food. So most slaves would have remained. So the idea of liberating him, emancipating him, Manumission was not the big picture. The picture was that Paul, in the household of Philemon, a church, said, in this church, all believers are brothers and sisters. That is the radical basis for ending racism. When my African-American brother is my brother, and not an object of my benevolence, we become equals. This is what Paul is trying to create in the church, an experiment of egalitarian living, an experiment where race and ethnicity and slavery status is eliminated and erased by the power of the gospel. But this can only happen through the power of the Spirit of God. You do not have the resources to do this. We've tried this for 50 years in American society. We've tried this for 160, 170 years in American society. And we take very small, what Bill Murray called, baby steps. And we haven't gotten there. We need the explosive power of the Spirit to transform us so that we can embrace one another as brothers and sisters, that we can listen to one another, and that we can engage in what's called equalization of power structures in our churches. Corey Edwards, a wonderful scholar at Ohio State University, wrote a book called The Elusive Dream on multiracial and uh, you know, uh, ethnic diversity in churches. And she concluded that the biggest problem with multi-ethnic churches is they're still run by white power structures created by white privilege and white invisibility. So that you cannot actually create a multi-ethnic church until you share power, until people in power step down and allow someone else to be in that position. This is hard. This changes jobs and job descriptions, and it creates a different narrative, and people leave, and they go to another church where invisibility is more visible. Our responsibility is to turn the invisible structures of society into visibility, 
and to turn those who are invisible in our society and make them visible. So I don't know if you've read Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man. It's a brilliant novel about an African-American male struggling in American society. The worst part of the book is he has no name. I, I, I sometimes would give him a name because I wanted him to have a name. But he didn't have a name. And that's the point. He's invisible. And it charted the path of African-American males in American society. Every pastor and leader in a church has to read this book to feel the, the groaning of African-American males. African-American females have alternative stories, similar paths, where the structures of our society are uh, against them. And we think the structures of our society are fair because they're fair to us. So, now, I'm not going to keep preaching on this. Here's what I want to say. You and I have the one secret that can make a difference. The secret is Romans 8, the Holy Spirit. It's Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3.11, 1 Corinthians 12.31, where the Spirit comes in and can actually allow us to transcend our abilities and inabilities and become something we never were. This can only happen through the power of the Spirit. All right, questions? We have about 10 minutes. That was not a very Anglican ending. I should have had some kind of Trinitarian blessing or something. All right. Anybody have questions, comments, criticisms about Philemon? Hmm? The Elusive Dream. Corey, K-O-R-I-E. Corey Edwards, The Elusive Dream. Very good book. Short, too. Well written. Clear as a bell. Too, too clear. Too piercing. In a racially integrated church? So it's real. I think that, I think you have to become aware. You have to become aware of structures that are actually prohibiting genuine family being created uh, across boundary lines. So you, you have to see it. You have to name it. But then you have to take concrete steps, intention and means, of uh, changing power structures by appointing leaders of diversity so that the power is actually shared. You know, it doesn't mean having an African-American or a Latin-American or an Asian-American preacher once a year so that we can pat ourselves on the back. It's actually the harder work of implementing power structures. All right, now you, you are all aware that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of American culture. And it's segregated largely by, because of safety, which means the church has not created what Paul intended us to create as a family, we have created racially obvious structures where privilege of those in power are, is, is running rampant. So we have to work very hard at this, and it's going to take 
It takes its hard work. We have to meet with African Americans, Latin Americans, Asian Americans. We have to get to know one another. We have to listen, and we have to listen to critique. And we have to not defend ourselves, but listen and think over time of where we are implicating ourselves in some of these invisible structures. You know, my prayer would be for you to invoke the Spirit to reveal to you whom you can meet with this week or next week. And you don't say, I want to meet with you because you're Latin American. <laughs> In fishing for walleye, we say, the jig is up. It's over. No. You want to meet because you want to know them, and you want them to know you. And you don't know where that relationship will take you. You don't know. But you're going to become friends. And through friends, you can become siblings. And when you become siblings, we can create an alternative system, a system of goodness, a system of family. And it's hard work. It's harder work in the South, the Deep South, than it is in other parts of the United States. But there's no place in the United States where it's good. We have a long way to go as Christians. But we have the power, I believe, to make a difference. I, I teach at Northern Seminary, and a lot of our classes are racially integrated, where we have a good number, sometimes as many as 40% in a class will be uh, ethnically or racially uh, minor, and we will have conversations where white students, for the first time, realize their implications in racism. It's magical. It's deeply penetrating and causes repentance. And uh, it's only because our students get to know one another over coffee and everything else. They have other libations as well. <laughs> and they get to know one another, and it's made a big difference uh, in our students, who I think are, are very solid in their Christian. Their, they move towards solidity in their Christian understanding of multi-ethnic churches. Yes. Well, Onesimus, was he treated as a brother or a slave? I have two answers to this. The first one, you probably know that at the beginning of the second century, there was a bishop in Ephesus by the name of Onesimus, which is a really cool. And it makes a great We don't know exactly what happened. But Paul says something in Colossians chapter 4 that uh, I think we need to pay attention to. In Colossians chapter, well, at the end of 3 and the beginning of 4, Paul talks about slave to master relations in the church at Colossus. And they can't think that Onesimus and Philemon are involved in or implicated. slaves. Maybe you don't like it, but this is what he says. Obey your earthly master in everything. Sounds a little tough. And do it. This is interesting. Not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence 
for the Lord, not for, the, not for Philemon. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. I think this is a direct statement about our messenger. He was lazy. He was a bad slave. But he's saying, you got to work hard. Since you know uh, that you will receive an inheritance. This is magical words for a slave. You're going to get an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, not Philemon. Powerful statement. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. All right. Pretty lengthy description because I think Paul knows there's problems in the household of Philemon. But listen to what he says to Philemon. Well, to Master. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair. This is the most banal translation I've ever seen in the world. Just and equal. The Greek word is isates. It means equality. That's a long way from that nice, genteel word, fair. What does fair mean? It means nothing. So therefore, it's a comfortable translation. No, you treat your slaves justly and equally because they are brothers in Christ. Dilly, dilly. Don't take this back to your churches. <laughs> well, you might. You might. You might get a little rise. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So the word, very short description to masters, is actually very penetrating. He says, masters, your responsibility as Christians is to treat your slaves justly and with equality. So this is what Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 8, 13 to 14 for the manna. You know, he uses the manna story about money is that everybody had what they needed. Nobody had more than, if you took more than what you needed, it was gone. It, it rotted. So you're only supposed to take what you need. That's the same word Paul uses here in Colossians 4. So he expects people to be treated equally, which would mean at least fair wages. What he means is treat them as siblings. So I believe Paul shoved Onesimus into the household to Philemon and said, I have no idea what this is going to look like, but we got to try. And that's all the farther we get in the, in the letter of Philemon. Okay. okay, I love being with you. I want to thank you so much for, for um, going along with me, a little spiritual shift today to move into a direct statement about what it means in the churches of Christ to live spirit-inspired lives in a world filled with racism, that it's our opportunity to make a difference by living through the power of the Spirit. God bless you.